When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. And I'll be joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. Ildi, Scott, welcome. Hello again. You know, before we get started on our conversation, let me read a quick introduction that I wrote, and then I'm going to read the introduction that John Steinbeck wrote. And no, I'm not going to ask you to compare them. Set in the Cannery District of Monterey, California, during the early 1930s, Cannery Row is the story, or maybe we'll say a collection of stories, about a group of resourceful but unemployed men. These folks may always be down, but they're never out. But the story of Cannery Row is really the story of Doc, the most popular and most put-upon citizen of Cannery Row. How the people of Cannery Row show their love for Doc and for Cannery Row, while constantly taking advantage of both, make up the story of our novel, Cannery Row, by John Steinbeck. Absolutely. Doc becomes a very endearing character almost right away. But that's my introduction to John Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Let me read you a quick paragraph about John Steinbeck describing his work. When you collect marine animals, there are certain flatworms so delicate that they are almost impossible to capture whole, for they break and tatter under the touch. You must let them ooze and crawl of their own will onto a knife blade and then lift them gently into your bottle of seawater. And perhaps that might be the best way to write this book, to open the page and to let the stories crawl out by themselves. Some of the characters certainly do have oozing, crawling characteristics. Scott, you're right, but let's save our discussion about the characters for our next segment. Right now, I'm just curious about your reaction to the book. Was this the first time you read it? Yes, it was. What'd you think? Absolutely loved it. Enjoyed pretty much every moment of it. There were even a couple of laugh out loud moments. Absolutely. Ildi, how about you? First time you read Cannery Row? It's the first time for me, but I didn't find it quite as funny as Scott did. I think you also mentioned you appreciated the moral code of some of our characters that you found in this novel. Yeah, Steinbeck says in the very beginning that it's more of a commentary of the people who live there. If you look at them one way, they all look like SOBs. And then if you look at them through another peephole, they would all be saints, angels, and martyrs. And I kept that in mind as I read the whole novel. And it was very interesting to see the sinfulness of these people and yet the underlying goodness. I agree with both of those points. There was a lot of sinfulness and there was a lot of goodness. And not forget that Steinbeck used an analogy of worms to describe them all. Every one of them. You're absolutely right. (laughs) All right. John Steinbeck called his novel Cannery Row. So tell me about Cannery Row. We're talking about a narrow street two or three city blocks long, lined with warehouses and fish canneries. The people that lived on Cannery Row worked in these canneries. When the fish were running, there was work to be had in the canneries. When the fish were not running, the citizens of Cannery Row basically had to fend for themselves. There's always something to catch and something to can, but sardines was number one. And essentially, that's how John Steinbeck opens his novel. And then he immediately moves on to one of the main characters, the grocer Lee Chong. Lee Chong is kind of like what you picture in a lot of old Western B-movies, where you have the Chinese guy who runs the little grocery store that sells pretty much everything and is always scheming, always working a deal, and everyone's in debt to him. This is Steinbeck's quote. Lee Chong's grocery, while not a model of neatness, was a miracle of supply. It was small and crowded, but within its single room, a man could find everything he needed or wanted to live and to be happy. Clothes, food, both fresh and canned, 
Liquor, tobacco, fishing equipment, machinery, boats, cordage, caps, even pork chops. He was a very good businessman as well. He was astute when it came to people coming in and wanting things and not having money, which most people didn't have money. He would let them buy on credit until their credit limit went a little too high, and then he would cut them off, and then somehow they would find money to pay his bills, and he never really had to pester them about it. And in fact, the first story we get about Lee Chong is about one of his customers. Horace Abbeville. Tell me about Horace Abbeville. He had two wives and six children, and he owned a warehouse that was full of fish meal. He had such a high debt with Chong that he wanted to sell his warehouse to Li Chong in payment of his debts. He had a sense of his own immortality coming soon, and he wanted to make sure he didn't leave his kids and two wives with a debt over their heads. Right. He seemed to not be able to find work in the recent months. Did Li Chong make this deal? It was a good building, solid, and so Li Chong did make the deal. In fact, it was Li Chong's fish meal in this building at the time anyway. Yeah, That's so it's right. like protecting an investment. And at the closing of their deal, he even tosses in a pint of whiskey. All right, Scott, you mentioned, though, that Abbeville had an inclination about his own mortality. And in fact, that's what happened. In fact, it's got his own hands. And as with a lot of the stories that Steinbeck's going to tell us in Cannery Row, we don't really know why. We just know it happened, and we move on. And what does happen next? We meet Mac and the boys. Street thugs may be slightly harsh, but probably close to being right. Certainly street-wise, I'm not sure I'd go all the way with you to thuggery. They lie, cheat, and steal. True. I don't think they're quite thugs. They're well-intentioned miscreants. <laughs> yeah, but when we first meet Mac and the boys, is he more well-intentioned or is he more miscreant? He's a schemer and a manipulator. And he has a scheme for Lee Chong, now that Lee Chong's the owner of this warehouse. He does. Well, Mac and his boys... When the weather is bad, they sleep in pipes, which are in a vacant lot in Cannery Row. And when the weather's nice, they sleep under trees out in the open. And so when Mac gets wind of the idea that Lee Chong has a warehouse that's vacant now, he thinks to himself, that would be a great place for me and the boys to live. And so he cooks up a scheme, goes to Lee Chong and says, hey, how about... Me and the boys, watch out for the place for you. You know, with a wink, wink, and a nod, nod, you don't want anyone knocking out the windows. You don't want anyone burning it down. We would protect it. And of course, what he means by that is, if you don't give it to us, we're going to do those things. <laughs> the old protections racket. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> so tell me, how does this plan work out? Well, when Mac presents his proposal, Steinbeck describes Lee Chong as envisioning, well, what will happen if I say no? And Steinbeck writes, he was beaten. He knew that. There is left to him only the possibility of saving face. So he offers, can I rent it to you? And Mac's like, well, sure. <laughs> not having any intention of paying and Lee knowing that he's not going to pay. He goes, well, how much? Five dollars. <laughs> and Mac figures, I'm not paying anything, but we might as well bargain a little bit. And he offers four dollars. And Lee Chong has to be stern and sturdy. And so he says, nope. Five dollars. Got to be five dollars. You know, you're right. Five dollars. It's worth it. And Lee kind of figures, okay, he's not going to end up all that bad in the end because if they're going to be living there, they are going to protect it. And because Lee Chong is their benefactor, they're always, if they have a little money, which is quite often they have a little money, they'll spend it at his store instead of stealing from him. <laughs> okay. John Steinbeck puts Mac and the boys aside for the moment and Lee Chong 
and he introduces us to another group of characters, Dora and her girls. Do you want to tell me a little bit about Dora? Dora is a madam who runs the local bordello. Bordello. (laughs) They call it the Bear Flag Restaurant, but that's just disguise. Stomach writes about Dora. Dora is a great woman, a great big woman, with flaming orange hair and a taste for Nile green evening dresses. <laughs> All right, finally, Scott Ildy, we get to meet Doc, the beloved citizen of Cannery Row. Doc Ricketts was a medical student. He has his degrees. He's very qualified, but all he really has ended up doing in life is drinking a lot of beer and running Western Biological, which I essentially concluded by the end of the novel, anytime a scientist needed to do research, or a school needed to do dissections, they turned to him, and he was the supplier for any sort of marine animal creature that you may want to operate, research, or dissect. He was a one-man wholesale distributor for marine specimens. Yeah, and the Western Biological is really just a building on top of a pier. I think you can get a clue as to Doc. It might seem off-topic initially, but it describes his home. It says, Behind the kitchen is a toilet and a shower. The toilet leaked for five years until a clever guest fixed it with a piece of chewing gum. When you walk through Western Biological, that's the sort of thing you expect to see. Haphazard things. When Doc would get extra money, he would buy equipment and tools and things like that. And he would never buy something for himself or his home, like a bedspread or fix his leaky toilet. Right. You know? They mentioned that he's had that blanket on his bed for many, many years, never been changed. And that's the one he takes out when he goes fishing. Yeah, so it's got sand and stuff in <laughs> it. All right, now you told me who Doc is, but tell me, why is he the most beloved character in Cannery Row? Well, he is the man that everyone goes to for any kind of problem, whether it be medical or veterinary work. Or if they need a dollar. Or if they need advice. He's very kind and can always give someone work. Actually, let's talk about that for a moment. He always has need of someone to go out into the tidal pools and either get him starfish or octopi, frogs. Love the frogs. We'll get there. (laughs) We'll get there. I promise. So he's always looking to hire Mac and his boys for odd jobs. He was also a very cultured man. He seems to be the only college graduate in Cannery Row and enjoys classical music, has many volumes of books in his house. He wears a beard on his face. He just seems to be the wise old professor. Of the town. Right. I think that's a great description of him. And he also cares about each person in the town. One of Steinbeck's quotes is, Doc has the hands of a brain surgeon and a cool, warm mind. He can kill anything for need, but he could not even hurt a feeling for pleasure. It also says that his face is half Christ and half satyr, and his face tells the truth. <laughs> That's I forgot that quote. So he's only <laughs> half a mythological, lustful, drunken woodland god. It does seem that Doc's vice is drinking quite a bit. Not to mention the women. <laughs> he doesn't go to visit the women. He lets them come to him. Well, Ildi, you mentioned that Doc gave some of Mac's boys part-time jobs. And in fact, that's how we meet a couple of Mac's boys, Hazel and Gay. Hazel is named for his aunt. Unfortunate, but true. Steinbeck writes, Hazel grew up, did four years in grammar school, four years in reform school, and didn't learn anything in either place. (laughs) What is Hazel doing for the doc when we meet him? Hazel and doc are out collecting starfish together. And once we've met Hazel, we meet another one of Mac's friends. He's named Gay. Well, Gay is an odd personality. He's married, but not quite happily. Apparently, Gay's wife likes to get him in trouble, tells the police that he's hitting her, and he ends up getting locked up in jail. Well, now wait, that used to be her old plan. But then they built a new jail, and that was a bit nice, and Gay didn't mind hanging around for a while. So she had to get (laughs) a new plan to punish Gay. And what was her new plan to punish her husband, Gay? As soon as Gay would fall asleep, 
she would start beating on him. And so he would wake up from this sleep and he would beat her back. Not because he wanted to, but just to get her away from him. says he took no enjoyment in beating her, but he had to remain respectable. But finally, he decides the best thing for him to do is just go live up on the hill with Mac and the boys. Well, he wasn't getting any sleep, and she obviously wasn't very happy with him, so seemed the logical choice. Well, Scott, I said he was going up to the hill to live with Mac and the boys, but they're not living in the old Abbeville fish meal warehouse anymore. They've renamed their home. That's correct. It is now affectionately known as the Palace Flop House and Grill. <laughs> well, it's not known as the Grill yet. That's a whole nother story, and we'll get to that soon. Right now, I want to talk a little bit about another resident of the Palace Flop House, Eddie. Eddie's kind of a special character in the house. Eddie was the understudy bartender at La Ida. Why does that make him special? Well, every time Eddie filled in, a few bottles disappeared. (laughs) And I'm guessing they showed up at the Palace Flophouse. One can assume. But even more interesting than the swipe bottles, he kept an empty gallon jug with a funnel inserted at the top. And every time he finds a glass which is not completely emptied, he dumps the remainder of those contents down the funnel. They called it the whining jug. Oh, my. Wine, whiskey, gin, beer. Anything. The ultimate mixed drink. A potent concoction. <laughs> Eventually, he stops pouring beer because that gave it a funny taste. But whatever it was, he was bringing home a gallon or more of this stuff every few nights. Not a bad deal for the other guys in the house. <laughs> they quite enjoyed having Eddie as part of their troupe. All right, let's talk about how the Palace Flophouse becomes the Palace Flophouse and Grill. They decide they want to cook in this house. Well, since they moved in, they've started to consider it a home, and so they start furnishing it. As much as they could steal, they put into that house. And they always had red paint to cover up the previous colors. That's right. So no owner could claim it. (laughs) And then they want to get this grill, and they finally find the perfect grill. But it's five miles away, and the owner wanted a dollar and a half and didn't come down to 80 cents for three days. (laughs) And the boys closed at 80 cents and gave him an IOU, which he probably still has. (laughs) (laughs) And then it took them another few days to figure out how they were going to get this 300-pound stove all the way back to the flop house. They had to carry it themselves. It took them three days, and they camped out next to it at night as (laughs) if someone's going to steal it. But when they finally got it home, it became the centerpiece of the home now known as the Palace Flophouse and Grill. That's right. (laughs) All right, Ildi, Scott, for the next few chapters, one of the main events of the novel takes place, a party for Doc. The boys decide Doc's been real good to us lately. We should throw him a party. But before they can throw a party, they need money. And before they can get money, they need frogs. Before they can get frogs, they need a car. And before they can get that car... They need gas. Precisely. First, they start with Doc. Indeed. They know that Doc is always in need of certain things like frogs. And there's a standard rate of exchange, five cents per frog. Not a bad deal. Not at all. And Doc is in need of a few hundred frogs. And he has to drive 500 miles to La Jolla to pick up some other sea creature. And so he can't get those frogs himself in time. But that also means he can't loan the boys his car. So now how are they going to get to these frogs? Well, Lee Chong has an old truck that he could loan them. Yeah, but Lee Chong's not going to put gas in that truck. Absolutely oh, no. not. How are they going to get gas in the truck so they can go get frogs for Doc so they can get money from Doc so they can throw Doc a party? Well, they try to get Doc to give them money to buy gas. Yeah, but Doc's a little too smart for that. He knows where most of that money would go. <laughs> exactly. So Doc writes a little note to the gas station attendant 
telling him to please put 10 gallons of gas into the car. And with this note, they go to Lee Chong and say, look, Mr. Chong, we have a note for gas. We'll fix your truck so it runs, but we need to then borrow it so we can go catch some frogs. And Lee, as hard as he tries, cannot figure out a reason why he could say no. Because right now his truck is broken. And he realizes Steinbeck writes, Gay was an inspired mechanic. So he agrees. So they get the car from Chong. Does Gay fix it? Without difficulty. And then they go for the gas. But Max sees the opportunity with this gas deal. He says, well, put five gallons in there because, oh, well, the tank might be rusted out, so it might leak out. So give us just $5 for the other five gallons. And the gas man says, oh, Doc thought you might say that. (laughs) So Max says, okay, well, then put half of the gas in there and then put the other half in a sealed up tank so we can take it with us. And the gas station attendant says, Doc saw through that one as well. Max says, put it all in. (laughs) (laughs) Foiled again. Can't blame a guy for trying. And these guys try every chance they get. (laughs) All right, so finally we've got Doc's gas in Lee Chong's truck, and they're all headed up to the pond to catch some frogs. I'm guessing this expedition doesn't work out very well. Well, the truck has some issues. (laughs) Well, they have to go up the hills in reverse, they find out. Right. Right. The forward gears don't quite have enough power left to get them up a hill, but the reverse gear, almost like new. Right. So they go up hills backwards. But that's not a problem. That's not a problem. No. But... A needle valve goes out in the carburetor. Ah, well, that'll stop you right there. It does. So how are they going to solve this problem? Well, Gay hitchhikes, and his mission is to go and find the needle they need to fix the valve. And Mac asks, how much do they cost? About a buck for a new one. Quarter at a Wreckers. Yeah, but you got a buck or even a quarter? Yeah, but I won't need it. And Mac says, fine, but get back as soon as you can. And they didn't see him again for 180 days. 180 days? (laughs) Yeah, I was a little mad when I read that. How could he just leave him stranded there like that? Then you kind of find out what happens to him. Well, what did happen to him? Well, a car picks him up after they broke down. And they go into Monterey. How could it happen? The car that picked up Gay broke down before it got into Monterey. If Gay had not been a mechanic, he would not have fixed the car. If he had not fixed it, the owner wouldn't have taken him to Jimmy Bruchas for a drink. And why was it Jimmy's birthday? Out of all the possibilities in the world, (laughs) only events occurred that lead to the Salinas jail. Oh, no. Sparky Ania and Tiny Coletti had made up a quarrel and were helping Jimmy to celebrate his birthday. The blonde came in. The musical Uh argument in front of the jukebox, Gay's new friend, who knew a judo hold and tried to show it to Sparky and got his wrist broken when the hold went wrong, the policeman with a bad stomach, all unrelated, irrelevant details, and yet all running in one direction. Fate just didn't intend Gay to go on that frog hunt, and fate took a heck of a lot (laughs) of trouble and people and accidents to keep him from it. All right. So we end up with Gay in jail. For 180 days. And the guy's stranded with no needle valve in their car. Well, let's get back to those guys. What have they been doing all this time? Sleeping. Ah. And they realize, well, he hasn't been back by now. Maybe he's not coming back. So Eddie goes, swipes a carburetor, replaces the entire carburetor. That takes care of the needle valve in the carburetor. And they go on their merry way without Gay. And they find the perfect spot to catch the frogs. I'll tell you, this sounded like an awesome spot. The Carmel River. But they don't set to hunting frogs right away. Yeah, well, you can't hunt frogs during the day, so they're going to wait till night falls. I see. So I'm guessing between now and nightfall, they're going to sleep and eat. Exactly. Indeed. What do they eat? Chicken. They happened to run one down on the way. <laughs> and they didn't even have to try very hard to hit it, did they? They barely had to <laughs> swerve at all. <laughs> so they're cooking a chicken? With carrots and onions. One of those things fell off the truck. The other didn't. <laughs> 
Oh, these boys are very resourceful. And Mac always brings salt and pepper because Mac thought anyone who travels without salt, pepper, and coffee is very silly indeed. (laughs) But it's during their evening nap before they can even start to hunt for frogs that they're rudely interrupted. Captain comes by. The property owner. Apparently they ignored the no trespassing signs. What no trespassing signs, they say. But Captain, we didn't see no signs. (laughs) They're all over the place, he says. And we're here to gather frogs for medical research. Don't you want cancer to be cured? Mac is a fast talker, and he eventually convinces this captain to let them hunt for the frogs. Not just that, but he convinces him to let Mac make a poultice to fix a festering sore on his dog, so he gets to go to the farmhouse with the captain, and he's going to take them to a smaller pond right next to the house, which is chock full of frogs. And these frogs have been keeping the captain up at night, so he'd be grateful to have these frogs taken That's away. That's right. And he's going to show his gratitude How? by pulling out an old barrel of corn whiskey, which Uh-oh. he bought back during Prohibition, just in case he wanted to see what it tasted like. But the wife makes him keep it in the basement. <laughs> Where is the wife? She's away at the state house. She's uh, a congressman. She's a politician, yeah. So they're going to get to do a lot of drinking in private. Well, they realize that it's hard to fill up individual glasses from the barrel, so they fill up a pitcher to fill up the glasses. <laughs> Brilliant. And Mac has another great idea. The way they hunt for these frogs was pretty amazing. Even as a Boy Scout, I don't remember this one. No frog ever would have suspected what came next, I think. Tell me what comes next. During the millennia that frogs and men have lived in the same world, it is probable that men have hunted frogs. And during that time, a pattern of hunt and parry has developed. The man with net or bow or lance or gun creeps noiselessly, as he thinks, toward the frog. The rules of the game require the frog to wait until the final flicker of a second when the net is descending, when the lance is in the air. Then the frog jumps, plops into the water, swims to the bottom, and waits until the man goes away. That is the way it is done, the way it has always been done. Frogs don't resent that, but how could they have anticipated Mac's new method? How could they have foreseen the horror that followed, the sudden flashing of lights, the shouting and squealing of men, the rush of feet? Every frog leaped, plopped into the pool, and swam frantically to the bottom. Then into the pool plunged the line of men, stamping, churning, moving in a crazy line up the pool, flinging their feet about. Hysterically, the frogs displaced from their placid spots swam ahead of the crazy thrashing feet, and the feet came on. A wave of frantic, Frustrated frogs, big ones, little ones, brown ones, green ones, men frogs and women frogs. A wave of them broke over the bank, crawled, leaping, scrambled. They clambered up the grass. They clutched at each other. Little ones rode on big ones. And then horror on horror, the flashlights found them. Two men gathered them up like berries. But never in frog history had such an execution taken place. Frogs by the pound, by the 50 pounds. They weren't (laughs) counted, but there must have been six or seven hundred. Then happily, Mac tied up the necks of the sacks. They were soaking, dripping wet, and the air was cool. They had a short one in the grass, a short drink, that is, in the grass, before they went back to the house so they wouldn't catch cold. It was a frog roundup. But let's not forget why they wanted these frogs. Well, that's going to be quite hilarious as well. They got to take them back to Doc. And how does that work? Well, when they get back, they want to have the party, but Doc's not back yet. So without Doc, they don't get any money for the frogs. Exactly. So they come up with a system of bartering. They go to Lee Chong and say, we need supplies for this party. And as you well know, frogs are worth five cents a piece. To Doc. To Doc. And so if 
they give the frogs to Lee Chong, he can give them to Doc for five cents a piece. It's as good as money. But not only that, they'll throw in a couple extra frogs per 10. So Lee Chung will make a two frog profit. Right. Well, they've got a lot of frogs to barter with now. So they're like rich men. And they need a lot of supplies for the party. That's right. They realize it's a great opportunity with Doc still gone. They can decorate the place. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So they start showing up at the grocery with frog after frog after frog. Buying banners and streamers and crepe paper. So they buy what they need and let's party. Let's party. Every frog has been traded now and they're ready to party. And they head over to the docks before he gets home to decorate his place. Doc never leaves his doors locked. And so they walk right in. They bring in some food. They bring in some whiskey and beer. And no frogs. They decide they need to have the frogs there to show off for Doc. After right. all, that's what's going to make him most happy. The frogs. So how do they work that out with Lee? He owns these frogs now. Lee brings them on over. And they get impatient. They, they don't quite wait. So they eat the food. But no Doc. And then they drink the whiskey they brought for Doc. But still no Doc. And then they start a few fights. And still no Doc. (laughs) Down goes the phonograph. Down go the shelves. Down go the books. Windows are knocked out. Doors knocked down. Still no Doc. $300 worth of medical equipment shattered. Still no Doc. Oh, it's a disaster. Finally, when Doc gets home. No party. (sighs) They've all left. And the frogs have been dumped out, and they have left as well. They made good their escape while the partying was happening. I imagine you probably ran a couple down as you pulled up. Does mention that a few get squashed in the road. Well, I believe they say that Cannery Row was plagued by frogs for a couple of days. <laughs> until they all made their way away. Poor Doc. Poor Doc, poor Mac and the boys. They feel terrible. That's right. It's hard to know who feels worse. Doc, whose place is destroyed. And he's furious. Or the boys who destroyed it. His fury is short-lived, though. But the boys' disgrace and shame last for a while. It lasts for a long time. They really feel bad and guilty about what happened. And finally, they come up with the only solution there can possibly be for throwing a bad party. Throw, Throw a, a good, good party. party. Exactly. Max says that last time we forced her, meaning the party... And he says, you can never give a good party that way. You got to let her creep up on you. So that's what they're going to try to do with this party. They're going to take their time. They're going to make some plans. And they're going to actually invite people. Actually, Hazel has a pretty good idea of making it a surprise birthday party. Ah. First, they have to find out when is his birthday. And how do they do that? Well, of course, Mac has a brilliant (laughs) scheme about how to figure out Doc's birthday. So he goes to Doc and says, well, Hazel and the other boys have been talking astrology. It says if you know the birthday, then you know how they're going to behave and how they're going to act and all these things. And they said that I was like this. What are you? When's your birthday? See if he's right about you. And of course, Doc immediately sees through this brilliant scheme. So he lies and gives them a fake birthday. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But really, for Mac and the boys' purposes, all they needed was a date. They didn't really need the right date. Right. So with the date set... 
They start their planning. And word spreads, and everyone plans, what's the perfect present for Doc? That's right. The boys make sure that this time everyone's coming with a gift. After all, it's his birthday. Right. And so actually, all the gifts that the people of Cannery Row come up with are, if you think about them, extremely thoughtful. Well, give me an example or two. Well, Dora's girls, for instance, are going to make him a quilt. Like we said before, he has a ratty old blanket on his bed that he takes fishing with him. And so they take little pieces of silk from their petticoats and from various dresses and gowns. And their undergarments. And they are going to make a quilt for his bed. And Scott, what about the boys? They've got a pretty unique gift too. Well, they know he always has need for cats. Why is that? Sells them to schools for dissection. That's right. And they're very hard to capture. So they get a female cat that's in heat and they put it in a trap and they gather up 21 tomcats and this time they respectfully keep the cats at the palace flop house for when doc is good and ready to pick them up we don't want another incident like we had with the frogs no no and mac also says no decorations this time either (laughs) what are some of the other gifts that show up lee chong for instance shows up with a string of firecrackers and some lily bulbs which end up getting eaten (laughs) so then the party must have turned out all right It was fantastic. And my favorite present was Mr. Malloy, who happens to live in the local abandoned boiler. He collects random things that he finds precious, like an old crankshaft off a car that has not been made for 20 years. That's right. He's noticed that antiques are essentially everyday items that now are scarce. So he figures a scarce crankshaft, it's got to have some value. Absolutely. So he polishes it all up, puts it in a box. Doc, here you go. There's only three of these left in the world. For a reason. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But Ildi and Scott, as we said, this party is everything the boys and the girls wanted it to be. You know, it starts to get slow after, you know, a little bit of drinking, a little bit of music. Nothing's really happening. They start to, like, oh, maybe it's about over. And at that moment, a crew from a fishing ship gets in and is looking for Dora's girls. And that's when the men, Max boys, defend Dora and her girls in a fight like none other breaks out. And even Doc gets in on this fun. His shirt is torn. The door gets knocked off again. And just as the cops pull up, they barely have time to turn the lights off and hold the door in place. Yeah, but this time it's a good party because Doc got to take part. Right. In the fighting, of course. And very fortunately, Doc hid all of his precious, valuable possessions. He even got to read some of his strange poetry. He did. And in the end, the house looked pretty much like it did at the end of the last party. And that's essentially how our novel, Cannery Row, ends, with the morning after this great party for Doc. Yep. Now, of course, Ildi Scott, in an hour, we can't get to every character or every moment in our novel. So now's your chance to tell us about a favorite character that we may have missed or a favorite quote we didn't get to read. Ildi, do you have something? Yeah, one of the characters we didn't even mention was a boy named Frankie, and he used to hang around Western Biological. Every day he would come a little bit closer. Finally, Doc asks him, why aren't you in school? He says, I don't go to school. Well, why not? Well, they don't want me there. So he calls up the school to verify, and sure enough, they don't want him. His coordination is off. They say he can't learn, and his parents don't really want him, and they don't have enough money to put him in an institution, so he's just hanging around. So Doc kind of takes him under his wing, and he tries to be of help to Doc all the time. He tries to sweep, and the rooms never get quite clean. It's like he's always one beat behind. And so you just have this overwhelming pathos for him. And later on, it's very endearing because he wants to go to that second party. He wants to get Doc the best gift. And 
he sees this clock and it's got a great figurine of St. George slaying the dragon on top of it. But it costs $75. Now where is Frankie going to get $75? So what does he do? He tries to steal it and he gets caught. And so Doc comes to try to bail him out and the officer wants to have him committed or put him in jail pretty much for good. And Doc says, well, no, I'll pay for it. Or no, 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 let's see why he did it. And the only thing that the boy can come up with is Frankie looks at him and says, I love you. And that's it. And that's why I love Frankie. (laughs) Steinbeck always has these characters that just wrench your heart. You know, I'd forgotten some of those moments with Doc and Frankie. I'm really glad you brought him up now. On a much lighter note, (laughs) when Doc is driving 500 miles to La Jolla while the boys are catching the frogs for him, he picks up a hitchhiker. And Doc has this habit of stopping every 30, 40 miles to have a beer while he's driving on a long trip. A beer and a hamburger. And so he naturally offers his hitchhiker a beer and a hamburger. Awfully nice, I thought. And the hitchhiker resents us. You're driving me around. How dare you drive under the influence? And Doc says, get out. Get out before I break all your teeth, essentially. And the hitchhiker doesn't know what to do, and he scampers away. And Doc, in anger, walks up to the hamburger stand and thinks back to something that's been tempting him for years. Someone said one time, Doc, you love beer so much, I bet someday you're going to have a beer milkshake. And this has been haunting his dreams. A beer milkshake, what would it be like? He just never could get the gumption up to order a beer milkshake. But this time, in anger, he walks up, they ask, what'll it be? Beer milkshake. What did he think about that beer milkshake when he finally had one? Rather flat, a little bit stale. (laughs) Sounds disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I just have a quick sentence here I wanted to read. More of a quiet moment with Mac and the boys. This is when we're introduced to them. Mac and the boys were sitting on the pipes in the vacant lot, dangling their feet in the mallow weeds and taking the sun, while they discoursed slowly and philosophically of matters of interest, but of no importance. I'd like to spend a couple weeks doing exactly that. (laughs) Steinbeck actually calls Mac and the boys the virtues, the graces, the beauties. That's not what the other citizens of Cannery Row call them. But in many ways, they have beautiful qualities as well. Yes, they do. Scott, before we end our conversation today, I know you were going to try to explain to us the poem that starts and ends this novel. Yeah, I'm going to give it a try. Go for it. Let me start by bringing back that Steinbeck describes Mac and the boys, and really everyone in Cannery Row. They're at one sense SOBs and gamblers, and at the same time, saints, holy men, and martyrs. Sort of half Jesus Christ, half Seder. Yeah, Doc is a perfect example of this. And Steinbeck seems to describe everyone with this split personality. The book itself begins, Cannery Row in Monterey, California, is a poem, a stink, a grating noise, a quality of light, a tone, a habit, a nostalgia, a dream. And he ends the novel in Doc's apartment after the party as he's cleaning up. And Doc pulls out one of his albums, Gregorian Music, and he put a Paternoster and Agnus Dei on the turntable and started it going. The angelic, disembodied voices filled the laboratory. They are incredibly pure and sweet. And as he's listening to this, he spies a book sitting under the couch. He pulls it out. It's his favorite poem, which he'd begun reading the night before to the audience at the party. And he reads to himself several lines from this. I'll just try to read the last one. Even now, I know that I have savored the hot taste of life, lifting green cups and gold at the great feast. Just for a small and forgotten time, I have had fool in my eyes from off my girl, the whitest pouring of eternal light. And I think essentially Steinbeck is making the case that Canary Row, in all of its horrible imperfections, is still a splendid, wonderful place 
much like a poem put to life. Yeah, in no way do you want to say that a lot of the horrible things that these people do are in any way good, but that these people, when you look at them another way, are beautiful, just like the Monterey Bay and the ocean. And I think it's because Steinbeck was able to get those two sides of man's character into this novel, the SOB and the saint. That makes it, for me, a great story and one well worth reading. There's a lot to contemplate. To both abhor and enjoy all at once. Yeah. And I think that's where we'll end today's conversation about the novel Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. I want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. You're both welcome. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, I noticed that John Steinbeck dedicated Cannery Row to Ed Ricketts because he would know why. Who was Ed Ricketts, and do you know why? Ed Ricketts was one of the most unusual ecologists of the middle part of the 20th century. A proto-ecologist. He was actually a college dropout. (laughs) This is a guy who took seven quarters at the University of Chicago and left, never finished his degree, travels to California, moves to the Pacific Grove area to form Pacific Biological Laboratories, and then goes on to Monterey, started in the 1920s, around 1927, and supplied specimens for schools, was involved with the ecology movement to try and save the sardines that were part of Cannery Row, and there he becomes known as Doc. So, Ted, Ed Ricketts opened up a marine specimen laboratory just like Doc did in Cannery Row? Yes, it was a little more than that. He sold cats and any other creatures that schools wanted for their biology classes, but he's most famous for predicting the destruction of the sardines, trying to save the sardines and being killed, in effect, by the sardines. You've got to tell me that story. He was killed by sardines? In a sense. During World War II, they needed extra sardines to feed the troops. So they built this huge cannery on Drake Avenue, right where it would block the railroad crossing. That's 1948. Doc at Ricketts wants a steak dinner. He's going out. He's driving. The cannery blocks his view. He ends up on the track at the same time as the train and is killed because of the sardines. Wow, revenge of the sardines? Not exactly, because ultimately Ed Ricketts had been warning that the improper use of the Pacific coast where the sardines were living would destroy their habitat and they would be gone. Turned out he was absolutely right, and it took 50 years before they came back to the area. Ted, I have another question for you. At the beginning and the end of our novel, John Steinbeck gives us a little poem about Monterey, about Cannery Row. He calls it a dream, a poem, a nostalgia, a quality of light, and a stink. I guess I'm not sure. Did he love Cannery Row or did he hate it? He absolutely loved Monterey, Cannery Row, the whole area. It was beautiful, but it was fishing country, and fishing country stinks, literally. So I guess he was telling us truth about Doc Ricketts and Monterey. Yes. All right. Ted, thank you for your endnotes today. You're welcome. I also want to thank our Novel Conversations readers, Ildi and Scott Rich. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, 
and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.